did you dunk on that you were like, yeah? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I'm going to send you that highlight. So, so Yo, right, over there guy. or in the in the palace? No, in oh in the form, and no question. Um, Ooh. All right, so Vinnie uh, Johnson comes through and throws the ball under, and Dennis and I were right there, and it goes past Dennis and goes into my hand, and I put it down, and Kareem was there, and Dennis moved, and I pull it back, and I close my eyes. I'm so, I I wanted to dunk on him so bad that he went to jump and realized, oh, this kid is about to flush it. And that's the poster I have in the NBA is with my eyes shut, my my groin pointing this way and Kareem's getting out of the way. So my brother knows Kareem, but Kareem is an old time player and he don't talk to rookies. And so my brother said, hey, yeah, you know my brother Johnny goes, I don't, I don't talk to rookies. And he wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't acknowledge me, wouldn't do anything. Three, four years. That was year three. I was done. I grabbed that ball. And if I could have, if I could have dunked it and then dunked it in his glasses, I would have done it too. <laughs> so did he have to acknowledge you after that? He never, no, man. The only time he acknowledged me was at the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> John Sally is a four-time NBA champion. He won with the Detroit Bad Boy Pistons. He won with Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls. And he won with Shaq and Kobe's L.A. Lakers. Man, he had an incredible career. And he's a funny and cool brother who's had stints in television and still rocking in television, still trying to dip into comedy. We talk about trash talking on the court. We talk about the things he did to distract his opponents. Those stories kill me. And we talk about what made the best players of his era so great. This is somebody who was up close and personal with Isaiah Thomas, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal. He knows what made some of the greats truly great. And we get into all of that and more for basketball fans this is an amazing conversation. Let's go. It's John Sally on Torre Show. When you were coming up into your senior year in Georgia Tech, who was your NBA idol who you were like, I'm kind of like him. I want to pattern my game to be like him. That's my guy. It would be Sid Green. Ooh. And you got, I know. So it was so crazy. So when I was growing up, I was little Sid. Uh, UNLV played in Chicago. And he came, and next thing you know, my rookie year, he's on the Pistons. And I wound up beating him out for the position. But if it was anybody I wanted to be, I, I like Bernard King, man. Bernard King, to, that's why I got in trouble when they said, Michael Jordan isn't the greatest of all time. I go, better than Bernard King? And they were like, what? And I was like, if you're from Brooklyn, you're going to say Bernard King. You're going to say Albert King. Like, I'm going to say Fly Williams. <laughs> I'm going to say World Be Free. World I'm going to call free. out. I'm going to call out all the Brooklyn cats on the street that do it without a referee that's paid, without Wood, 
with <laughs> no tape. Sneakers that literally are probably taped on the inside. You don't even know. So I'm going to go to that. But Bernard King, might, he might drop 60 or 70 on you from, yeah. from the outside. Not even layups and like all jumpers. All jumpers. And they're going to give him the ball every time down court. You know, <laughs> when they get the rebound, they're going to come down court, they're giving him the ball, and you have to put – your teammates ain't going to help out. Nobody wants to get embarrassed. The ship so be sinking. Say, I wanted to be Bernard King, but I liked anybody skinny. Uh, Dow Walker, Lewis Orr, uh, anybody that was skinny because I was but, thin. But Bernard King – was like a two or a three, right? Three. And, and, and okay, and you were a four. Well, I grew into a four or five, but I used to be, um, I used to be small human size like you. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then I grew into this mammoth, uh, long armed, stretch Armstrong. <laughs> That's but my I man, started- too. I know. I started off playing God and being just skinny little kid. And then I guess uh, the universe said, we're going to make you a seven footer. Um, are you, are you, are you seven? Until I was 32 years old, 32 or 35 years old. Wait, it was a crazy. My feet wait, how, got how, how tall are you? And got, I'm six eleven and three quarters. <laughs> I, when I, when I left college, I was six ten. When and I was 22. You, when did you have the growth spurt? Uh, 15. I, uh, 14, 15. That summer I grew four inches. And then the next, and then over the year I grew another. Uh, it was a crazy thing. I grew eight inches in one year. So how did that and change? Uh, your my knees were killing me. My feet were killing me. My elbows, my neck. I was sleeping all the time. Lower back. Um, it, was, it, was, it was like a Michael Jackson thriller video. <laughs> <laughs> you know that. You know that. You remember when his hands came out of his feet? That's what it felt like. So, okay, you got to the league. You started having some success. You know, you were able to do your thing. What made you effective? Like, what were you able to do that you're like, like, especially on the offensive side, were you like, I, you know, I know I can always. I, I was uh, mentally strong. Chuck Daly, God rest his soul, the coach of the Detroit Pistons, says, you have the best mental health of any athlete I've ever seen. And no one knew what he was talking about, mental health. Now we see everyone talking about mental health issues. I can focus on one thing for a very long time. And I know it sounds braggadocious. It's not. I can literally focus. For, it's almost like a drummer. I won't miss beat. I'll stay on beat for a very long time. And you have to, right? Because you... That holds the beat to everybody else. I also understand um, upper mind and lower mind, meaning if somebody sticks their hand out in a gesture to shake your hand, your body almost can't resist but to move to shake their hand back. Right. Right. I, I understand that. I understand momentum. I studied martial arts for a long time, so I understand using somebody else's um, momentum and being off balance to uh, counteract what I, and that was because I was so thin. 
So if I lean one way and I see a big guy leaning, I know he can't lean and then lean back. He's not, he's not, he's not fat Joe. So he can't lean back. So once I got you to lean, I knew I was quick enough to get around you. And because I play guard and I can dribble, I'll send you some highlights. Um, I can dribble. It was important for me to know, to use those tactics to get by somebody. And then I could jump. So to be a seven footer that can jump, I was trying to dunk before you even jumped. So I, I always played a game within a game within a game. And I loved it so much. I think that was my superhero power. I loved it so much that I played it because I loved it and I had fun with it. As soon as I stopped having fun, I quit. Wait, I want to talk more about your mind, but who did you dunk on that you were like, yeah? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I'm going to send you that highlight. So, so uh, wait, over there guy, or in the in the palace? No, in oh in the forum, and no question. Um, I also dunked on uh, Patrick and in New York, and and I got more joy out of it because my mother was a Patrick Ewing fan. <laughs> um, I dunked on Robert Paris left hand and got that frame. <laughs> I tried to dunk on every single person I've ever. The only person I didn't get is Akeem Olajuwon. Well, tell me about the Kareem. All right, so uh, Vinny Johnson comes through and throws the ball under, and Dennis and I were right there. And it goes past Dennis and goes into my hand. And I put it down, and Kareem was there, and Dennis moved. And I pull it back, and I close my eyes. I'm so I, – I wanted to dunk on him so bad that he went to jump and realized, oh, this kid is about to flush it. And that's the poster I have in the NBA is with my eyes shut, my my groin pointing this way, and Kareem's getting out of the way. So my brother knows Kareem, but Kareem is an old-time player, and he don't talk to rookies. And so my brother said, hey, yeah, you know my brother Johnny goes, I don't, I don't talk to rookies. And he wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't acknowledge me, wouldn't do anything. Three, four years. That was year three. I was done. I grabbed that ball. And if I could have, if I could have dunked it and then dunked it in his glasses, I would have done it too. <laughs> so did he have to acknowledge you after that? He never, no, man. The only time he acknowledged me was at the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> he tapped me and said, look at the breasts on that girl. I was like, Kareem just spoke to me. Oh, yeah, nice breast, lady. You know, that that was the only time we ever really talked. That's a true story. I swear to God, he would not say anything to me. And the one time he spoke, he was like, look at the breast on that shit. And but I what, guess that was him. What about, uh, what about with Patrick Ewing? Uh, Patrick, man, I got that picture. Uh, I used to tell Patrick not to jump. But I've been playing against Patrick Ewing since I was 16. And this time I caught the ball, I said, I said, Beast, don't jump. I would say it as I was taking off. And Pat always wanted to block a shot. Uh, so he's dunked on, my legs are up, and I know they're taking pictures. And uh, <laughs> I, I use that picture too. I kind of got Larry Bird. I'm dunking. Larry tried to pull me down, uh, <laughs> pull me out of the sky. So, so dirty. <laughs> but my job, I said, I'm going to dunk on everybody in the NBA. Everybody is getting flushed on. I don't care who it is. 
they get dumped on. In my park, in Bayview Project, uh, Bayview Housing Projects, in Canarsie, if you got dumped on, you had to get out of the park for five minutes. <laughs> so in my mind, yo, you got to get out the park, son. <laughs> who, who dunked on you that you were like, damn? Michael Jordan. <laughs> Michael got me so quick, Tori. And we was on CBS. So when he dunked, I couldn't get out of the way. Because, you know, CBS runs it again and again and again and again. Oh, my God. He got me. Is it, was, is it the hang time that screwed you up? No, he gets up quicker than you. And he can hold the ball like a grapefruit. So he's doing all this stuff. And then when he grabs the ball, it just looks like he's dribbling it. He's jumping. And the ball is already above his head. And he only has to jump 10 inches to dunk. And he's going up while he's dunking on you. I got the picture of me grabbing his face and trying to pull him out of the air. That's when he dunked on me. You, like, you, I'll send you that. But he's I literally, I'm, I'm like, I cannot believe you got me. And he's in my face, too, because he knew I was going to talk smack the entire time. Did he did what did he say something after he got you? Yeah, what he did is I tell you this, this is a great story. So I'm on the I'm on the uh on the Bulls and we got uh we're playing and he, he sees that Phil is trying to do something and so he's sending Michael and Scotty home. And Michael acts like he's leaving, he backs up, he goes, I knew you were gonna scrimmage. No, no, I'm playing. And he walks on the court and he goes, Pistons against the Bulls. And he got Ron Harper so upset that he put Ron Harper, me, Dennis, James Edwards on this team, Jack Haley, somebody else. Y'all on that squad. It's Pistons versus. And he was back. And so all of a sudden we're playing. He just has on tennis shoes, Tori. He just tied them up. Like when I mean tennis, I mean as if you were going to play tennis. Canvas, tennis. 1950, just Nike kick around. And he got on sweat, rolled up, and he gets a steal. And it's, and I'm running back late, and it's just me. And I'm thinking, I can't take him out of the air. Well, I'm just going to block a shot. When I turned around and looked, he was flying by my face <laughs> like this. And he was like, block this shit, B-I-C-T-H. Block this. And I was like, one, I had never realized how high he jumped. And I'm seven foot. And his above midsection was here. That means he was head almost dunking. And he was so happy. And my mom's passed in January, God rest her soul. But I, I called her and said, my, I think I just saw the greatest play of all time. She said, it took you this long to admit it. I said, well, I'm not going to admit it. I'm telling you, but I'm not going to tell the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, he is, he, is, he is something special. Well, you played against him in Epic Wars. You played with him. What made Jordan so great? Uh, his intensity. Every game MJ played was his most important game. Um, you can see in the last dance, uh, he is so intense. Just a, just a, just a bit of that. 
I we had no idea on the Pistons that he was going through the turmoil he was going through. We had no idea that, you know, we almost sent him to the crazy house. We enjoyed it, but we had no idea that that's that I didn't. I had no idea that that's where it was going. Um, that was one of my favorite things is when I saw that is how much we we knew we were in his head. Um, but his his ability to hold on, think about it. It takes a lot to hold on to a grudge when you're so great that you need the littlest thing to make you play like you have nothing else going. Just the littlest thing pissed Mike off. And, and then he was going to get back at you. He wouldn't forget. And that was, that was the best part of it. The intensity. Uh, <laughs> You're covering his face and he's still going to make the dunk. He still dunked it. I said that to him. I was like, he said, I was not, not going to get you today. And it was a, he's my frat brother, Omega Sci-Fi Incorporated, best frat in the world. And, and we would hang out, 1988, 89, 90. He, like, stopped hanging out, 1990 with me because he became the Messiah. And we just couldn't go where we used to go. But that was the deal. I'm going to be the nicest, fun guy in the world. And then when the game starts, I'm going to try to demoralize you to the point that you should never play ball again. But then after, we're going to talk a little bit about it and then talk about the girls. That's, I, I, don't, I don't carry it all. Michael carries it. He holds it. He uses it fuel. I don't. Every time I got on court, whoever's in front of me, you're trying to take my mother's house, embarrass me in front of the girls, and put me on da-da-da, da-da-da. You try to make me ESPN highlight. So... I'm trying to kill you. And that was every single game. I had to learn that in college. I had a sports psychiatrist who taught me how to meditate and, and focus on what was happening. So I, I just learned how to focus. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. 
Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Well, yeah, I mean, I want to hear more about your mental approach, because that's the thing that separates you from a lot of people. Um, just, you know, you were there in a lot of pressure situations and you performed, executed. You know, a lot of people are like, you know, I love to have a great career like John. Like, what is the mental approach? How do you get the mind right before the game, during the game, during the pressure moment so you can, like, you know, do your thing? Uh, let me tell you, everybody, when they talk about the game, they say, oh, man, we got a good game tonight. You know, my team is going to play. We're going to stop early, get some food, and then we're going to have a couple of drinks, and then we're going to go over to the stadium, and we're going to sit there, and we're going to yell and holler, and then halftime is going to come. They're going to get more drinks. Then after the game, they're going to listen to the radio or what happened, and they're going to go and have dinner. And it's just a night. When you're a professional athlete, all day is the game. The entire day. And then after the game, the entire night is the game. So what I eat for breakfast, what time I wake up, if I got treatment, what time I took my nap, what I ate when I got up from my nap. Did I eat enough to sustain me from 7.30 to 9.30? Do I eat something which you shouldn't because your body takes two hours to break it down. So I would eat at 4.30, then I would eat at 5.30, and then I would eat something again at 6.15. Um, not a lot, but like bananas or fruit, all the way, you know, I would just eat three, four bananas, strawberries, eat an apple, drink a lot of water. And then by 7, when we had to get in, you start stretching and moving and you're warming up. And then by that time, 7.30 comes around, that energy kicks in and you got to, you know, be a thoroughbred. And then after it, you lift weights or you run on a treadmill just to get the rest out. And then you go eat chicken wings. It's, it's, it's like I had to change that in 1991 is why I became vegan AF. But because I understood how the body worked. And then if you won, all right, all right, simmer down, simmer down, you know, no. Don't go patting yourself on the back. There's a lot of things we got to work on as a coach. Probably a Catholic preacher at the same time. You know, they don't give you any credit. 
and and you have to you have to live this, and you got like ten minutes to enjoy your win, and then the media comes in, and then you got 15, 20 minutes. And then you walk out and you walk with your chest out, and the security guard is saying stuff, and, and your girlfriend is saying something, your wife is saying something else, your mistress is mad, she's got the wrong seats. These are just jokes. <laughs> um, no. So, you know, you, you have, I'm just joking, but you, you have all of that. When you lose, this is the craziest thing. Everybody comes in the locker room, it's quiet, the coach is aggressive. He points out every single thing you already know. The media comes in and asks you why you did some of the dumb stuff you did. Then when you walk out, no one wants to catch your eyesight. Your energy is low. And you got to constantly live it. Because you're now on ESPN, they're talking about it. The, the radio is talking about it. The paper in the morning is talking about it. They, they talk about a loss. Way more than the win. So you got to have strong mental health. I told this one kid, booze and cheers are the same sound because they come from the same people. Do, do you hate to lose more or do you love to win more? I love to win. Well, I hate to lose more. I'm not a good loser. When I went to the Miami Heat, we had a, I thought we had a team that could really get somewhere. We had Steve Smith, Glenn Rice, Brian Shaw, Harold Miner, Ronnie Cycli, Matt Geiger, Willie Burton. I mean, we had we had some Keith Askins, Bimbo Coles. We had some players. Grant Long. We would only play 36 minutes. That drove me crazy. The first through the third quarter, we were great. Fourth quarter, we disappeared. And I would be like, dog, I'm not used to losing. I'm used to being carried. I'm used to I'm used to being in parades. I'm used to going through red lights and police escorting me through those red lights. I'm not I'm not used to this um, because my whole career in Detroit, we won, we lost in the Eastern Conference Championship my first year, but then we won the second year and lost in the championship, and then I won two championships back to back. I'm, I'm not I'm not good at losing. I went to Miami and it was a to be in the sun with women that don't wear undergarments and and lose is ridiculous. That, that is the worst thing you can possibly do. Like that you supposed it's supposed to be a winning city. I'm so happy they turned into that. I mean But I wasn't good and I'm really not good at losing. You've been I mean, you were in a lot of big important games. You know, the Pistons weren't always blowing people out. You know, the, you know, a lot of those games were close that y'all eked out or just got away from you. So the the feeling and the mindset and the mentality when it's you know two minutes, ninety seconds, sixty seconds left, and it's close, and you know the games will come out down to one or two shots or one or two rebounds. Like, what is going on upstairs that helps you make it happen? The, the, this is funny because I didn't start in Detroit, but I finished. And Chuck would say, because I'm a good finisher, I'm going to hit the foul shots when I need to hit the foul shots. I'm going to defend and remember the defensive scheme. Um, when there's 90 seconds left, you, that's the time you can feel if somebody got hard or not. You can. 
guys who don't want to take the last shot, guys who want to get the ball out of their hand. They don't play the right defense. They don't foul somebody. I, I was aggressive the whole way through. So I played my man. And if your man was coming through and I knew it had to be, I had to foul him. I was really good at that. And I was really good at fouling you to the point where if you had to take a foul shot, you had to think about it because your wrist or your elbow kind of hurt. Like I, if I was going to foul you, I fouled you. Like I'm not going to knit at you. If I'm going to foul you, I'm going to hit you, hit that, you. That was bad boy basketball. And then I can act like I'm picking you up. But you ain't going to make an easy basket. If you're going to make it, you're going to have to go to that foul line with all of these fans and with your elbow hurting and hit the foul shot. But didn't you have, so, did you not have nerves that you had to deal with when you're, you know, in those clashes with the Bulls, the Lakers, the, the, the Celtics? Did you, did you not have nerves? No. Um, one, I was, so I'm, I grew up, a, I grew up in Brooklyn, but I'm a Celtic fan. And everybody thought I was crazy. I said, well, they were the first team to hire a black coach, Bill <laughs> Russell. And I, first and, team to have a black player. Yeah. And th- that's right. And on their squad, it was a trip because Red put all black guys and then had to take two and bring them off the bench just so we can have two white guys on court. And one of them being a point guard, Bob Cousy, because he felt they were better quarterbacks. But that's a whole wrong thing that Jojo White came in and changed it. But anyway, you know, racism. Anyway, um, and so I was a Celtic fan. So when I went up there, because the Celtics told me they were going to draft me. Like, Red Arback was on me since, but then he took Lenny Bias, which was the, the smartest thing anybody could have took, could have done. The smarter thing would have been to get his people not to let Lenny go back to Maryland. But hindsight is twenty twenty. I... It was the hardest thing to beat Larry Bird because his mental capacity is, is stronger than anybody as I've ever seen. He doesn't make mistakes in critical situations. Ever. Ever. And I and I tell somebody I said, no, I said, you find me a game and I'll buy you a beer. He doesn't make critical mistakes. And that's a hard person to play against. And a guy who only loves to play basketball, nothing else. That was the hardest one. The Lakers were hard, but you know the but Lakers had nerves? eight guys against five. They but had three ner- referees. No nerves. Were you were you not nervous in these situations? Did you have to deal with that? No. The reason I wasn't nervous is this was um, I got rid of most of my ego. I got no. I got rid of most of my ego uh, as I got older. But my ego was oh everybody's watching me. Everybody's watching this game. Everybody's oh this. This is what I used to dream about. Play in my hallway. I used to my, I used to play up in the Bronx with the Gauchos, and I would have to take a two-hour train ride on all the oh, way to get up there. By the time I get to the game, it'd be like first quarter be over, and I'd get in and sometime play, sometime. But I'd be on the train on the subway going back, dribbling my ball, you know, oh, last shot, you know, doing all that in my mind. So when I finally got there, it was exactly as I dreamt it. So I only thought this is all I was going to do anyway. I knew I was going to do television because I love Johnny Carson. I wanted to be a late night talk show host, which I did on BET. Um, yes, yes. I just didn't have Ed McMahon. 
but I lived out that fantasy and dream. But I wanted to be on TV, but I wanted to be interviewed by Johnny. I wanted to be interviewed by uh, Michael Doug- Mike Douglas at that time. No one knows who he is. I, yeah, wanted, to, yeah, I yeah. wanted to be interviewed. Um, and then I realized I wanted to be an interviewer um, because they make the most money. Uh, <laughs> way more than basketball. So I, I, you know, once you get to your dream, the problem is you wake up. I wish you could dream from dream to dream, but you don't. You have to wake up, go through some stuff, go back to sleep, dream again, then wake up. It seems part of the issue of nerves when we get into big moments is we think about how will other people think of me if I win or lose? No. See, that's... And that creates the nervousness. You said you think. The best thing about being a professional athlete this is going to, people are not going to like what I'm saying, but you have to understand. You remember they used to call guys dumb jocks? He said, man, he's a dumb jock, right? He doesn't know this. He doesn't know that. He, all he knows is sports. Because when you're doing this, you don't think. You react. So there's no thinking involved. There's reaction. And when you're doing what you have worked and worked and worked in repetition to do. You don't have to think about what happens when he goes right. You know, you slide left. You don't have to think about when he spins. Are you going to stand there? Are you going to give space? There's things you have to know that you have practiced and practiced to become second nature. So there's no thinking. And I would get to guys and go, guys, we're sitting there going back. I say, hey, hey. Don't, don't bring that energy here. We practice this. We, we just got to do what we practice. Don't do anything but what you practice. And if that's why practice is so important. Now, when Alan Ivan was like, practice, we talk about practice. Yeah, we're talking about practice because it needs to, it needs to uh, have a resemblance of the game at 100%. Practice needs to be at 70 60%. So you need to know also, I have to put this other 40 when the game comes. So I, I believe repetition. That's why you shoot so many foul shots. So when you get to the foul line, you know how to put it in the hole. So the core of being able to execute in pressure is not thinking. Not thinking. Think about this. So what happened? He said, I didn't think about it. I just, there was a kid who was about to get hit by a car. What were you thinking? I didn't. I just reacted. That's the same exact thing. If you think, you're too late. If you think about it, then you have to stop process. Come up with some uh, cognitive uh, reasoning uh, with these different people and then react. That's not not the most important thing. When I watched Draymond Green, I told Draymond, one of my favorite players, I would have loved playing with Draymond Green. He doesn't think. He He reacts. He's such a bad boy sort of player. That's right. That's, and, and, and you know, everybody says that, but think about it. Who you want on your side when the time comes to? You want that, that, that line with no courage? Put him up. Or do you want a warrior? You remind me of um, Kobe was in the booth at the U.S. Open tennis. I think it was last September. 
and he was just sitting in with them and there was some player, I think it was a women's match he was watching and somebody was choking a little bit in like the third set, late in the third set. And he says to the one of the other announcers, is that a lack of repetitions or is it something else? And I was just like, that's how he thinks about it. That mm-hmm. you do so many repetitions in practice that you you in crunch time you would just do you would just execute because my body already knows this is what we do. So, so like you're saying, you don't have to think about it. You just do. And, and this is funny. You mentioned uh, the great one. I used to play one on one with him every day and beat him. Um, <laughs> and he hated it because I'm seven foot. And he, I said, you're never going to beat me if you let me go go first. If, if I go first, I'm going to score. If we play to five, I'm going to beat you because I'm how not going to score. How did you beat him in one-on-one? What was this? What was your strategy? I back down and I put the ball above my head and I shoot it. He's 6'5". You're not, you're not stopping me. And I would tell other big guys that too. When you see a small guy, put the ball where they can't get it. And then maneuver. is when you maneuver with the ball down here where everybody can get it. When you bring the ball here, you fall level. You wasted all whole three feet. So Kevin Duncan would get the ball and put it here and make all of his passes and moves. That's how you play big. You play big up here. And so I, he but he wanted to play with it. And he would do every move. We would talk about every player. Um, he was very, like, he would ask all the questions about MJ. But he would ask about other people, too. And I would tell him, yo, man, you need to get some video on David Thompson. You need to get some video on Sidney Moncrief. I said, it ain't going to be that available. I said, but these dudes are dogs. He goes, oh, no, I know. I said, I said, yeah, but back in the day, they, the NBA is going to pick on who they celebrate. But David Thompson, he wasn't, you know, he had a drug situation, but he jumped out the gym. And, and Sidney Moncrief was the toughest, smallest man in the world. All right, wait, I want to talk about Kobe, but I want to jump back for a second because you were the 86 draft. Number 11, Len yeah. Bias was number two. You guys were both in the ACC. So did right. you did you know Len before the draft? Yeah, I've been, Lenny and I, me, Lenny, and Johnny Dawkins were always at five-star basketball camp. And Lenny and I were real tight. And so all three of us were going to go to Maryland. Wow. And, and, uh, and so I remember asking Lester Giselle, was he going to start me? He said, well, you got to beat out Ben Coleman. And I go, he didn't tell me that Georgia Tech. I didn't have to beat out anybody. And then Johnny was like, I don't want to stay home. I want to get this Duke education. And then I found out that Georgia Tech was the IM, uh, MIT of the South. And it was in Atlanta uh, with 17 women, every one man. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, what was, but what was Len Bias like? Len Bias, like, I, I tell people this. I don't know if we would talk about MJ the way we do if Len Bias had stayed alive. And now, people just thinking I'm hating on Michael. I'm not. I love, I'm a Michael Jordan fan. No doubt. This kid was 6'9 and a beast since we, since, like, we were at five star basketball camp. And Billy Thompson was supposed to be the number one player in the country. And Lenny had to go in because he had to get stitches over his eye. 
I said, man, I heard that you had to go in town and get stitches. He said, not, <laughs> yeah, after I gave Billy Thompson some stitches and took him to town. Like, he was like Michael. Oh, you supposed to be the best? Let's see what it is. 6'9", 235 pounds of muscle, um, just a killer. Good guy, wrong place. Well, uh, I mean, for the, for, for the few people who don't remember, Len Bias was number two pick of the Boston Celtics and yeah. went back to the University of Maryland, did some cocaine for the first time in his life, at least that was the story, and died. Like the Yeah, day. so... The reason that we know we were Playboy All Americans the year before, and it was a lot of guys, and they, they brought us to this thing. And, you know, we were young guys who couldn't drink, but somehow they had all of us Playboy All Americans in a bar that was closed with no bartender, but a lot of liquor. And so these guys are drinking and playing cards and doing it. And Lenny was like, Look at that guy, man. He goes, They put that poison in their body. He said, I, I wish I got to play this guy. Like, that's how intense he was on it. Uh, we like cold, we like clothes. Like at the draft, we both was wearing a tame linen silk suits with crocodile shoes. Um, had blue crocodile on, had this tame. So I just knew I was sharp, and Lenny was sharp. Like that was our thing. Our thing was clothes. So and he was dating Marilyn um, Marilyn Webb. Is that Marilyn's last name? She used to be on BET. Uh, Oh, my God. I forgot Marilyn's last name. And he decided to hang out with those cats as opposed to going and hanging out with her. Or, like, I went, I got drafted, hugged my people, and then got to JFK, uh, yeah, and then rushed to Detroit. Um, Boston didn't do that. I think all teams do that now. They bring you in right away so the next morning you can have a press conference. Um, sometime when everyone asked me if you had a time machine, what would you change? I think I would go back to 1986. And uh, the only reason I wouldn't go any earlier than that is I, I'm so happy that I went to play for Detroit. But what did, what impact, what impact did Len's death have on you? Well, I didn't smoke weed until I was 36. I didn't drink until I was 32. And that was when I was 21 when Lenny died. So I always wasn't a drinker anyway. And I, I, I didn't smoke weed. I didn't do any of that stuff because I was raised as Jehovah Witness. I was a scaredy cat that I was going to be known. At. And I said this, I never understood how guys could work their whole life to get to a point to be considered a drug addict and not a basketball player. And I, I didn't, I like women and dressing and clothes. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't need drugs. And my, I was raised, my father was an alcoholic when I was, well, everybody's an alcoholic if you were born in the, in the 20s. Um, and so I saw the effects of alcohol and I didn't get involved. I didn't smoke a joint until my the month before uh, my last month as a professional athlete in Sacramento. I mean, but I mean, like your head was on straight with those things. But I mean, you know, like I was a kid, just, a, you know, a couple of years younger than y'all. And it had a deep effect on me. I mean, I remember my father calling me and saying, yo, Limbias is dead. And I was like, get the fuck out of here. And it, you know, it was, it was, it was traumatic. Like, you know, like, like one of my cousins had died. It was like, whoa. And you knew the dude. 
I was tight with him. So like, I went to the funeral. Like I, I flew in. We did all that we did. Like I woke. So I get on. I get to Detroit. We go to Janopolis, which is a restaurant just closed. Chuck Daly's there. We talk. David Falk is with me. Um, Dennis Rodman. We take pictures. The next day, the Pistons. You know they're still cheap. They put us me. They wouldn't give me my own separate room. So me and Dennis are sharing a room. And Dennis is watching cartoons as he always did. And then he wakes, I wake up and he goes, Hey man, the picture of the guy you were on the television with yesterday, um, something really bad happened to him. What are you talking about? He says, it's all over the news. I turn the channel and I see it. And we had to do a press conference after that about being Pistons as if Lenny Bias didn't just die. Like I had to act like that didn't just happen. So I was in a fog. With a, with a fake smile on it. And then as soon as that was over, I was back to Atlanta, getting my stuff, and then up to D.C., staying at Johnny Dawkins' house for Lenny's funeral a week, uh, two weeks later. It was crazy. Um, so, Kobe, what made him so great? Uh, he had his father. I know you're not going to hear this. But Jelly Bean made Kobe so great because Jelly Bean was a great player that, you know, because he was playing on a team with Dr. J, didn't get a fair shot. So Kobe watched his father, who he plays like, jumps like, plays like. He saw him get the, you know, bad end of the stick. And... Like, we would do things like um, Kobe had a whole bunch of film of everybody. Yeah, everybody, he would carry a VHS tape um, recorder. They would come in his room, connect it. You know, you got a maintenance connected. And he would have a ton of videotape. It was all VHS. He had about 10, and he would watch those and then order room service. He was a kid, so he couldn't really go out. Right. Um, so we would go TGI Fridays and shit like that. Um, and I think the fact that he took his job, but this was the only thing he was going to do. He wasn't going to do anything else. And he didn't want to do anything else. And I I remember I said to him, so you're going to be, you're the next Michael Jordan. They say, huh? He goes, no, I'm the first Kobe Bryant. So. And, and he's 20. I said, that's big, yo. He said, yeah, man, everybody, you know, okay, I model my game after my little guy's game, but, you know, that's it. And I said, why'd you come out of college? He was like, because I heard MJ was retiring and I wanted to be able to play against him. And it was funny when you see the tape and Michael's talking to him, he goes, but MJ, I know what you're going to do. You're going to do this, this, and you, like he knew each step. He thought he was in Michael's mind. And, and that's what made him so great. He literally was in people's heads by watching them, watching them, watching them so much and then emulated it. And he would go to, to he, he lived in Brentwood in Palisades, which is closer to the water. Nobody else lived there, which was amazing that 
I haven't even moved to the Palisades yet. I should have. And he would go to Venice gym, work out, eat breakfast, and then come to practice. So imagine at 7 o'clock, he's working on his body and his game. By the time we get to practice, guys don't want to practice. They're moving 50% of the speed. He would already had lifted, already had prepared his body, was there getting treatment before, because he was always at the at the spot about 9.30. We didn't have to be there until, I think, practice at 10.30. He was already there, taped, ready to go. Then he was practiced really intensely. Um, Phil had this thing about not scrimmaging a lot. You scrimmage half court, but no up and down a lot. If you wanted some, um, if you wanted your body condition, you worked after. So, and then after he would want to play one on one. So, for six seven hours, it was basketball to him. And then when you see his house, when he wound up building his house down in Orange County, the gym is in his house. He's shooting in very confined spots in the house. And if you watch his game, that's where he shot from. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So this was it. He was uh, one of my good friends is Tom Everhart. He's uh, one of the greatest artists uh, ever. And you see him paint the Snoopy. And he still has the rights to paint the Snoopy. He paints all day. He always paints. He, 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 He paints. He listens to hip hop. He rides his bike, gets a latte, rides his bike back. He paints all day. That's what makes you a great painter. That's what makes you a great athlete is repetition, 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 repetition. Even to the point where it seems monotonous and it's not going to do anything to the point where Michael Jordan can get on the foul line, close his eyes and shoot a foul shot. And it go in because you don't need to have your eyes. It's almost like being Neo in the, in the Matrix. 
What about Shaq? I imagine that's an entirely different approach and yet still one of the all-time greats. Yeah, and everyone says, man, if Shaq would have, if Shaq would have been a boring seven-footer and with no pizzazz and no, but the guy has flavor. He he has an imp. Think about this. Everybody says, if Shaq would have been this, this is what he would have been. Shaq is great without being what you think he should have been. And he's the richest seven-footer ever. No other NBA player has the money Shaq has. David Robinson. David Robinson made. What made him a great player? Oh, he was your height in 7-1, 300 pounds. So what I mean by that is you may see him as a seven-footer, but he really had a guy about this big inside of him controlling everything. So to be able to break dance, to be able to run, to be able to swim, and and uh, to be able to handle the ball, he had broken wrists at one time, so his hand doesn't move the whole way. A lot of people wanted him to be finesse. I felt he should have scored 100 points a game just dunking on people. I, I mean it. I mean, if he didn't want to if he would have just grabbed the ball and done it, when he gets mad, everybody moves out of his way. So I, I still think he was a great player. It just sends you not short. And he's closer to the basket. It seemed easier. Is he the greatest seven-footer? Next to me? <laughs> they all were great. Kareem, though, still leads the league in scoring. Yeah. To this day, there's no one has broke his scoring title. Right. So number one gets number one. But Shaq. I mean, what a what a what a contrast in terms of Kareem, right? He seems cerebral and finesse, and Shaq is just power and definitely intelligent, but power. Yeah. It, and Kareem was finesse. Kareem is an um, elite way of thinking. Kareem was a great, a great cat, but Shaquille's in a whole different level. It's a whole different level with Shaquille. Um, I'm just going to say the breakdance and the rap and the commercials, the acting, all the things that everyone thought took away from who he was or uh, as a basketball player, just show you how great he was as a, as a, as a human. He didn't. He didn't. He doesn't need basketball to define him, uh, and so people looked at it that way. And those those basketball heads that want you to be a gladiator, meaning perform and get out of the way. Oh, did I show you my cafe organics? My new vegan cafe. Just thought I mentioned that. Since we don't have commercials on this show, I opened up a vegan cafe in San Bernardino around a whole lot of brown and black people. It's doing fabulous. Black people are becoming vegans five times faster than any race in the world. Really? Really? Yeah, we're starting to realize if we're not healthy, we can't fight. (laughs) (laughs) You You can't say, Black Lives Matter. Whew. How much longer are we going to walk? We can't do that. <laughs> you can't be dying from diabetes and having a inhaler and going, 
No justice, no peace. You have to become healthy, healthy, physically and mentally healthy. The other, or one of the other unforgettable players you played with was Zeke, Isaiah Thomas. And I had him on the show as well. What made him so great? He was the best. Everyone said, even more than MJ. I played with MJ one year, six months. I played with Isaiah my first six years in the NBA. He's six one on a good day and can get 40 with one ankle. And no three-point line. No. And is going to look to pass before he scores. He's going to get those assists. I, I mean, I almost posted. I didn't say almost. I posted. Everyone's talking about Steph Curry. I love Steph Curry. I, I knew Steph Curry before Steph Curry was born. His father his was in your draft. And, and he was a Playboy All-American with me, and I played against him in college. Like, this is my dude. I tell people, Dale Curry is the best shooter I've ever seen in my life. I tell people that. And then his son comes out and does this and makes me look like a knucklehead. But Dale Curry was the best shooter I've ever seen. And, well, Fly Williams was. That's a long story. Um, but it was, was Dale. And I put up Isaiah stats and Steph Curry stats in the first six years, first five years in the league. Not close. But that doesn't sell jerseys for Golden State for people to do that. And if they hadn't seen it in so long, this looks amazing. But Isaiah, my mother and I watched Isaiah win uh, in the NCAA championship. And, and the, boy, this is this is true. Isaiah, my mother was like, boy, I'm going to watch basketball now. He is so entertaining. And I was so happy she was watching it with me because she never watched sports. And then after they lost, after they won, there was a guy on the ground crying. And she goes, what happened? What happened to him? I said, he lost. My age crying. She goes, he's crying over a game, Johnny? I said, yeah. She said, I better never see you cry on TV over no game. So I never, you know, at the end of the game, they were like, how are you so joyful? I don't want my mom to kick my butt. Well, I mean, to that, I mean, I wasn't going to bring it up, but like, you know, the 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 Pistons walked out on the Bulls when they won and you did not. You right. were like, I'm going to shake their hands. And it was that part of that, like at the end of the game, mama said, and it's the right thing, like, like be a stand up dude. And also you talked about like our connections are deeper than Pistons. Yeah. Bulls. I, I know you as a person away from all this, so I'm not going to follow Lambeer and them to the locker room. I'm going to shake their hand. Well, I, I had a lot of run-ins with Lambeer. I, I, didn't, believe, I didn't follow a lot of things he said. Um, I, I, I make it even simpler, uh, not to go against him or anything. But he said, hey, let's give them the championship like the Boston gave it to us. I said, we're not the Celtics. I thought they were classless, too. I thought that was classless. Because the, the Celtics way had he, walked out on y'all when y'all beat them, except for McHale. No one said anything because it was the great Larry Bird. And they go, well, he walked out for security reasons. Hey, we could have got him on his walkout if somebody wanted to get him. Nobody's trying to hurt no player like that. Um, but my, and like I said, MJ had been with me since 1982, 83. I'm not – this is a basketball game. I already got checked. I already got paid. We won two championships. It was their turn. Just class. It never runs out of style. And so when Bill said, hey, we're going to do this, 
I, Isaiah, tell you when you talk to him, I said, hey, this is a bad idea. I wouldn't do this. You said, said it's a bad to, idea. To him. To Isaiah. Y'all are having this conversation on the bench. On the, on the bench. And Lambeer's like, so let's they, get they out were of like, here. They like, no, we're going to, next time out, we're going to, and I said to Chuck, I said, hey, put me back in the game. He said, you can't get any more stats out. I said, no, nah, there's something about to go down I don't want to be a part of. He said, all right, go in. And the, and the rookie I'm taking, he's like, I was like, out. And I go in the game. And so when they're walking out, I act like I don't see it. But just for the record, Vinny Johnson stayed, Joe Dumas stayed, Scott Hastings stayed, uh, I think Dennis Rodman stayed. Uh, the, the, the only thing they caught was Isaiah dipping around somebody. If Isaiah stops and gives MJ a pound, it's over. He's on Dream Team 1. That's how big it was. He's on Dream Team 1. But Isaiah is one of these cats, man. He's the captain of the My captain, no captain. He had to go down with the ship. If, 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 if there was, he couldn't show any mutiny. He couldn't, he couldn't let his boys not. I just thought it was a bad idea and a choice. Um, him being from Chicago. There were so many things that he says he looks back on. Um, that's what I talk about, thinking or reacting. He reacted in a thinking situation. Mm, mm. One of my favorite parts of The Last Dance was the Rodman episode. And when they got Rodman talking about the philosophy of rebounding and how, I mean, you talk about reacting, he's thinking at a deep level about rebounding and he's beating out guys who are way taller than him all the time. Talk about Rodman as a rebounder and what made him so great. We called him big man. That's what his nickname on the Pistons are. Hey, big man, because he played the big man. And he would watch film after film. I didn't like watching film. Like I said, I'm from Brooklyn. Oh, you supposed to be nice? Yo, watch this. That's my mentality. Uh, I don't need to watch and see what you do. Watch and see what I do. Oh, that's how you get down? Oh, nice move. Now it's my turn. He watched tons of film. And he watched... Where the ball came off, if it was shot from there, he saw the rotation on the ball, it was going to come this way. That's how, that's how intense he was. Um, and he would do it. And he has an energy. Whatever planet he's from, I don't think there's a lot of them on Earth. Um, there's a couple of them. It was him, Boy George, uh, uh, Adam Ant. Uh, Billy Idol. Uh, they don't know nothing about that. <laughs> yeah, they all from him. They're all from the same planet, guaranteed. Prince. Yeah, Prince was from the other side of the other planet. You know, he's from the black side, but uh, <laughs> of that planet, I would say that. But that's his mentality, and you had when you know that. You're, you're flipping. Like, this can't really be. Yeah, it really is. That's his mentality. He realized, if I get it, that teams don't shoot 60 or 70%. And so they used to tell us, hey, um, 
if you want to score, get an offensive rebound. There's a lot of offensive rebounds. And he would get the offensive rebound and start the ball back over. I'd be like, nah. You heard what he said. You get an offensive rebound, you put it back in the basket. That, that's how I was thinking. I'm trying to get points. So his mentality is there's more shots missed than hit. So it is going to be way more rebounds. And I can get 20 rebounds a game. It's better than 20 points a game. And he was right. 20 rebounds a game is like 40 points a game. Especially if you get an offensive rebound and giving us another 24, he understood it too. That's and he understood how embarrassed guys were when you shut them down on defense. Was how, was your trash-talking game strong? Still. <laughs> what would you say to guys? Oh, well, first thing, I would, uh, on, a, on a away game, on a away game, if, just just give you an idea. When it's like a top player, you know, he comes out in his shooting jersey and signs a couple of autographs and hearing the coaches out there, he's shooting and he's trying to get his shooting or whatever. He's just posing. Then you happen to see one of the baddest women you've ever seen there early too. That's because she had to come with this fool. So I would realize... Who's and I, I did this at a lot of people. I still have my teeth, but I did it to a lot of people. I would ask the ball boy, what's her name? And he'd be like, who? Huh? He said, oh, that's such and such girl. I, I know whose girl it is. What's her name? Tell me her name. And the first thing I would get in the game, I'd be like, oh, my girl, the girl in the white, such and such is banging. Get this ball boy to get my number over to her. I just got a name, but when I get, I would know. And they're not going to be like, hey, man, that's my woman. You ain't going to do that. You're going to try to hit me. You're going to try. You're going to think about me. You're going to think about me. And you're going to think about, does she like him? Did she give him his name? How did he do that? That's how intense it got with me to the point where I had to constantly. At one time, I tried to send a whole bunch of girls to Shaq's room his rookie year. Uh in, in Miami, and I just had him just go knock on his door, and just and this is door, and he's staying at the May at the Mayfair. Just go knock on the door, and then what? I said, just let him look at you and bounce. I had three, four, five, six girls knock on every every fifteen minutes, knocking on his door. Got in the game, he scored thirteen. Had four, had four fouls. <laughs> I don't have time. <laughs> For Shaquille O'Neal to put me on ESPN for the rest of my life, I, I, I just got a new contract. I'm trying to get the next one. Uh, only Stanley Roberts didn't go for it, but it was it was it, it you constantly. Gary Payton, the biggest trash talker. Reggie Miller. What did what did uh, they say? What did they say? Give me some examples. Oh. Uh, Gary was like, oh, y'all, you got a small man on me? Oh, y'all y'all need to put a big man on me. And if you put the big man on me, I'm going to throw the ball in the air, and then he's going to go get the ring. He would be talking, oh, we taking y'all out tonight. Y'all try that, but I ain't from here. Constantly, 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 constantly. I remember the first time I saw him, I didn't know who he was, and he was posting Isaiah up. And I was like, "That he's a guard? They were like, yeah. I said, yo, he's nice. We got to. But one of the things that I, that, that, Isaiah revealed for me in our conversation was the trash talking, especially at the NBA level, 
is not about I'm better than you like it is in the street. It's about how can I distract you from your mission such Mm -hmm. that you're like, you know, you know, he's not going to pass you the ball. So, you know, you're, you're broken, you're breaking off from what the coach and the team wants you to do. Or the thing you talk about, like, you know, I'm talking about your girl. Now you're distracted from the game. So it's not about, I, I, I just shot a three in your face. It's about how can I get you distracted from what you are supposed to be doing? Yeah. If you get to a point that you want to know who doesn't go for it, um, Westbrook and, and Durant. Durant will let you know in the middle of the game he's willing to fight you right there. And Westbrook is just, it's like he hates that you even had the audacity to play against him. That, that whole look, that whole feel. Um, but when you get in the game, my job is to make you think about me. If I got you thinking about me, you're not thinking about what you need to do and how you need to do it. And you, and soon as you become me, that that takes away from the game. Like they said, what Michael said, there's no I, there's no I, uh, there's no me and win. No I and team. But no I and team, but there's yeah. an I and win, motherfucker. It, it is like by all means. It, it's Chuck uh, Jack McCluskey, the great uh, general manager of the Detroit Pistons. He said, "It's not whether you win or lose; it's whether you win." What else did you do in terms of talking to, like, you know, screw guys up? Oh, I would. Charles Oakley used to want to fight me all the time. He wound up punching me one time, getting me. He was coming back in. I was like, where do you get your suit? Looked at me. I said, who gets a neon yellow suit? Like, why is that attractive? You said this to him in the middle of the game. Middle of the game. I was like, Doug. You have some of the worst suits I've ever seen in my life. It's like, who is this cat ever? Like, yo, you need to work on your game, so your suits are terrible. You guys are, like, on the block, like, the ball's moving around, and you're like, your suits are terrible money. You dress like shit. I, no, I'm like, yo, man, I saw that, uh, that neon yellow suit jacket you had. That shit is whack. <laughs> like, I said... Serious, I wasn't going to say nothing, but that's probably the wackest shit I've ever seen. I can't wait. I, I told him to take a picture at the end of the game. I got I to gotta send this shit to somebody. This shit is whack. This shit you was wearing was whack. Stand up looking at me. I said, you do a lot of whack shit when it comes to clothing, man. They shouldn't give, shouldn't give y'all all money. And then you get a rebound, you just keep playing. Just It's like, yo, man, watch yourself. Watch myself. I can't help from seeing you, brother. God damn, I can see you. <laughs> this is going back and forth during the middle of the game. Yeah. I said, this is the dumbest suit I've ever seen in my life. And, and now it, it just bothers me that you're out here and you're going to have to get out of the game and wear that suit. Again. I said, it's black constantly. He's like, yo, this kid is on some next shit. Oh, my God. Who else? Who, who else did you wear out like that? Oh. I, uh, it was a, it was a play. One of my friends, God rest his soul, named Leonard Drake. He was a, a makeup artist in the, for the movies. And, um, he was a, a homosexual. And, oh, what did they say? He was gay. That's what they say now. Um, 
and one of my best one of my best friends. But you know, you when I was playing, you know, everything was. Yeah. But I like being around him. He did my wife's makeup. He let my wife stay with her when she was modeling in New York. You know, I trusted him around my wife. You know what I'm saying? And he started telling me stories about the NBA that I had absolutely no idea. But I know. That's what I said. I said, you got it written down? And so there was this one player that was still playing that he would always, he was like, oh, he's just so fine. I wish I could get to him. And I was like, he's like, I don't know. I can turn him. But I knew that this guy would probably be bothered by knowing this. So we were sitting down, this big rebounder, and I said, Hey man, I, I got this. Uh, one of my friends, he's a homosexual, but he thinks you're really sexy, and I don't know if you're into it. But in the uh, game, you're I, saying this. In the game, I said during any time I can introduce you guys. Guys, well, I, I'm not gay. I said, well, you don't know if you are, but let him talk to you. Like, just talk to him. He's a nice guy, good-looking dude. When I tell you, dudes are wanting to fight me, man. Fight me. And I was like, why do you want to fight me, man? Like, it, it, I remember Alonzo wanted, Alonzo wanted, he's kidding me. What's wrong with your boy Dennis? I, said, I think he likes your calves. You got the biggest calves for a black man I've ever seen. I think he likes the calves. I said, he really likes you. You know, just go with it. And Dennis runs alongside and plays with Alonzo. And I said, pat him on his butt. Dennis said, what? I said, just pat him, but soft. Dennis run by. Pat him. Lonzo wanted to tear the arena down. <laughs> the bad part about that, I didn't know he was abused as a child. Alonzo wanted. And I was triggering, triggering, triggering. But, you know, he, he was abused by being beat up. So his whole deal was anybody that came at him, he was ready to fight. And I wind up seeing this later when he does these ads. And I was like, Oh, that was so mean of me. But fun at the time. <laughs> <laughs> if you had known, you still would have done it. I, most likely. Alonzo was hard to play. I just He just became vegan last year, uh, October. So, you know, he always looked at me side-eyed because he, he didn't know if I was being serious or joking with him. And I was like, dog, I, I should tell people, you're one of my... You're one of my favorite players because you were so intense and nothing bothered him. You can dunk on Alonzo. He'd take the ball out and throw it out. Like it was, he said, it's just two points. And I wasn't raised that way. I was like, you get dunked on, the game stops. Girls write your numbers out of their books. Uh, your parents move and don't want anybody to know you. That's what I'm from. Him, you dunk on him, you just take the ball out. I was like, yo, how do you do that? Thanks so much to Big John for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Gerville, Calais, Michelle, Brenda Cox, Kathy F., and Dr. Kina Murphy. The Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. And check out my newsletter, Black Minds Matter. Go to blackmindsmatter.substack.com. 
Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Sean DeCovington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday and on Friday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down.